0: Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away. My labor and my leisures too, as I embraced the void. Void quite calming, actually. It's like this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story. Ah! This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, Can taste and see.
1: Warning this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people.
0: Welcome, friends, to episode 124 of Embrace the Void. Where we fear not death, for the void is our comfort. I am your host, Aaron, and I'm back with part two of my discussion with Bren on aging and death. Um, As with last episode, we're going to talk bluntly about death a bunch, so content warning on that. I also want to mention that we actually both observed after the fact that euthanasia didn't actually really come up much at all in this discussion though it could have and it would have been a productive valuable part of the discussion Um, so for folks who are interested in hearing more about intentional dying specifically uh, i recommend going back to episode 99 where i had david warnock on to talk about his dying out loud project Uh, in the meantime though here is some very applied ethics My guest this week is once again, Brenda Goodman, one of my very favorite people, and now a certified death doula. Bren, thank you so much for sticking around in the void for some experimental part two. Delighted. So in part one, which folks should definitely go back and listen to, uh, if you haven't yet, we discussed a lot of the theory and kind of big picture stuff around death doulas and um, aging and death in our culture, broadly speaking. Uh, So in contrast to that, in part two, I thought it'd be fun for us to work through some of the preparatory material that you mentioned earlier for helping people to have a vision of how they want their aging and death to go. Um, So... Why don't you start by just describing for folks the general structure of these preparation materials?
1: So the tool we're going to talk about today um, is a vision map, and it's um, the particular one. There are lots of different ways you can do this. The particular one that I'm using um, involves five different components um, that we'll explore and what we'll do with these is develop a vision for each of those five areas and determine what we need to do to get there. And it kind of ends up being an action plan so that you can, can accomplish the things that you saw in each of those areas. The five areas um, are spirit, which is about honoring beliefs and practices. So what what is your vision of that? Um, emotions, how do you want to honor feelings and relationships? Legacy life review, also called the mental stage, um, just exactly what it says, how you want um, that to take place uh, during your remaining time and at end of life. Your body, um, how can you increase comfort, health, and safety? What environment do you want? What matters to you about your body and how it's cared for? And the last is practical, and these are arrangements and aftercare for your body. So how will your, your physical remains be uh, handled uh, after your death and what matters to you about that? So I think that's, that's the snapshot.
0: Mm-hmm. And what do you like about this structure as a way for people to approach this? Do you think there are parts of it that are like, particularly helpful or things that folks often don't incorporate when they might be at least thinking about these things in their own head some?
1: it's been real interesting because i've done this with social workers and people who i um knew had been thoughtful about their end of life and and some had, had 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 it as their life's work but there were still surprises for them so that that was interesting to me because you don't think about the specifics i think we do the check the box of i've got my will done and i've picked out a place uh for my remains I'm good. I've done everything I can to protect the people I care about and um, and make things uh, tidy. And that's really just the beginning. It it doesn't really have depth. Um, so there are a lot, lot more boxes to check off. What I found is that people get really energized by this. And that's been true with every interview I've had, that it's been exciting for people to feel like they were creating something and not just doing something odious that, uh, that it was required to do.
0: I guess that's what you meant at the end last time when you were saying that death can be fun. Yes, uh, Yeah.
1: exactly.
0: Yeah. So how does that energizing often, I mean, how do you feel it sort of comes through in different ways for people? Do you feel like it turns into changes to their behavior or just their ways of thinking about death?
1: I definitely think it changes the way people think about death because it, um, instead of feeling like a victim of death, people tend to feel like the co-creator or the creator of those terms and um, definitely feel much more empowered about how they can be involved and make that stage constructive. Um, I think I mentioned in the first uh, segment that educating came up for so many people I've done this with. Um, in terms of not just, okay, I'm going to be gone, and so this stuff has to get done, but, oh, this is a way that I can uh, show other people that I'm not afraid of my death, that I'm embracing it, and that this is who I was, and all these things that feel very positive and, and just they aren't focused only on loss and deficit and victimhood.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can, if you feel comfortable sharing this, but were there any sort of responses? you don't have to say who they were from or something like that, but anything that really surprised you in the conversations that you've had so far, things that like you felt like you hadn't even thought of that people brought to the table?
1: Um, The area of regrets is one of the things that comes up in with each of the segments that we, we talk about. Um, and everyone initially said they had none, no matter which area it was. And then as in the course of it, sometimes I'd be in another segment and they'd come back and say, you know, I was really thinking about uh, such and such because most of us most of us do try to handle our stuff, I think, as well as we can. And so our, our immediate thing is, I'm good, I've done everything. I'm not saying that you have to, and there's inevitably something, but um, people have been very intrigued to find out that there was something um Kind of stuck in their craw it may not have been huge but it was something that again often made them feel like they had something to contribute with it and not just i need this or this has to happen or i'm a bad person if i don't do this but it felt positive it felt constructive
0: that's great so w- in preparation for doing some of this live on 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 the show we thought of reverse would be good to do one of them um on our own and so we went through the one that had to do with um practical things having to do with um end of life and post-life especially kinds of questions and we thought it'd be good maybe to go back through and summarize what we had gotten out of that first discussion before we um dive into another section so do you want to maybe summarize a little bit about what came out of um, what you felt like came out of that first um uh meeting
1: yeah so um it was uh I guess not too many surprises for me, but certainly clarity. I We've never had that conversation before or anything like it in terms of your wishes for your body and how you thought about that and what kind of things would come up. So I'm going to recap it in the way that I would report it out to you um, that will become part of the vision map. So I'll start with, with what the vision ended up being from your comments. Um, I will have a natural, environmentally positive burial with my physical remains contributing in the most utilitarian way, including including body organ donation. The things I value will be honored in a re- celebration that is relaxed and easy, with readings from the Tao uh strangers in a strange land and a feast with a big hunk of meat the last part did not surprise me at all <laughs> none of them did but um and so from there what we do is say okay if that's what you want um then where are you with that which of these things does someone else know about what are what are in place so forth and you know essentially because it's not an area that that you've explored before you, d- you don't have the information to put this in place right now. So what we did, the framework for this is always, no matter if I'm talking to you, when you're perfectly healthy and have no awareness of, of imminent end of life and you're 30 years old or whether you're 80 and you've just gotten a, a terminal diagnosis. Um, however, the, fr- the structure is this is your last three months. So we frame the actions for very concrete steps in the next three months. So what we said is um, in middle of January, you would get information from me about green burial options and determine your preference and that you would note it in what I'm calling a death wishes notebook, which I encourage people to have and put their, put their legal documents and other things that will be helpful for anyone that's um, managing these arrangements. Um, then the second piece of that was setting up an appointment with a financial planner and attorney to complete your will, advance medical directive and financial power of attorney. And I've included in the advanced medical directive um, to include a dementia screen scenario. Um, that there are new tools available that really ha- help you indicate your wishes, in various scenarios, even cognitive ones, and those were not in place previously. It was more about just um, technology that you didn't want um, unnecessary technology uh, involved. And then from there, we went to um, researching best uses of the body after death to benefit science or living people. You weren't uh, familiar with that area um, when I talk about this, some, you know, I offer some information, but generally, if the person is in a situation where they can do their own research, then turning it over to them is generally a really positive thing to do. Uh, the second is to make arrangements for the body organ donation and get those in place. And the last is to select passages from the readings that you wanted for this your celebration.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I really enjoyed going through this stuff with you um, from a personal sort of phenomenological experience as we were going through it. When you were first asking me, you know, what do I want to have happen with my body after I die? You know, my first feelings were I care very little, little generally speaking, about what happens to my body personally. I don't need it to be honored in any sort of strong kind of way. So my initial thoughts went towards, um, you know, I want it to be dealt with in the least harmful or impactful way possible in terms of not having a, a you know a burial in a traditional cemetery or something like that, and maybe even not cremation, depending on what technology is available at that point for disposing of bodies in a environmentally um, respectful kind of way. Uh, but then as we were talking, you mentioned body farms, I think just sort of offhandedly, and it, it helped because it triggered for me the other part of things which I had wasn't even in the mindset of, which was You know, my body going in positive ways towards helping people in situations like research or organs or something like that. And um, I do think that I I ended up realizing that I'm much more concerned about my body being used in a constructive way rather than it merely being disposed of in a way that doesn't produce any sort of excess harm or something like that. So that kind of shifted to be the central priority for me with regard to my body at that point. Um, And then the other thing that I noticed was that, you know, a lot of it was here are things that I think would be great if they did happen, but I don't want them to feel like a burden to the people who are remaining. So um, you know, where there would be a ceremony. If there is a ceremony, these things to me feel like they can be conditional on the state of being of the people who are left when I'm gone. Yep. <laughs> so I thought it was really great that way that it, you know, even for someone who I, I spent a lot of time thinking about death and life and all these sorts of things, when you're in the moment and you're being asked those questions, you may, parts of things that may have been, sort of central to your thinking and other times might suddenly drop out and you have to then be reminded of them. And then having that dialogue I think is um, really valuable. So I think it's the sort of thing where you might get into a mindset of like, Oh, well I talk about this stuff a lot with people, so I shouldn't worry so much about giving specific directives because they'll be able to know what I want. But like, you may not even be entirely clear with yourself about what the main priorities are until you actually actively have this conversation.
1: Yeah. So so for me, a lot of times um, what what comes up is that, yes, if you're talking to someone who doesn't have any, any reason to expect that their life is ending soon – it's it, it emphasizes the importance of what might change if you you don't pass for 50 years or 60 years or whatever but because you give you give that over, overview that broad view and and for Aaron what what just gelled for me very well was utilitarianism. Not, Not surprising, but I wouldn't have necessarily thought of that. And so that kind of becomes like a North Star. If I were to be the one that was trying to make those arrangements and everything hadn't been put in place, that would really help me. The more specific information he can give, of course, that's better. But we don't have any idea what um, burial options there may be um, when that time comes. So getting that broad view is equally important as as having the underlying, well, I want it here and I want it to happen in this way. Um, so both of those things, both those levels, I think are really important.
0: Yeah, I guess I really realized that, you know, I think you should be a virtue theorist right up until the point that you die, at which point you should become a real strict utilitarian. Right. So. <laughs> little, little takeaway from that. So great. So I think that hopefully gives folks a sense. And then, yeah, like, the value of putting together an action plan afterwards, I think, is really important that, um, you know, there are specific things like, I should go back and reread Stranger in a Strange Land for however many times this is. And, you know, look for like, what are the the passages that are the most meaningful to me that I might want conveyed um, after I'm gone or something like that.
1: Those are some of the things that happen that enrich people's lives right now. Mm -hmm. So while this is uh, a planning for death activity, um, I can't emphasize enough that it is so much about living. Uh, It really is. And it really influences the way people live um, going forward.
0: Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit here. And I'm going to hand over uh, the reins to you in terms of asking questions. And I'm going to do my best to try to answer the questions from this next section uh, as if, you know, no one was listening. Do you want to give folks a little description sort of broadly about what the section is and then dive in?
1: Yeah, so this piece is going to be about the, um, the mental domain, which is about legacy and life review, life purpose. With all of these, they cross over a lot and that's fine wherever the information pops up. You know, it'll it'll show up on your overall plan at the end, so it doesn't really matter. Um, I have to say, I've never done this um, live, and so normally there's a lot of white space, a lot of reflection. But there is a preliminary preparation where I've sent Aaron some uh, questions that were different than these, but very related. So they were more specific, just to stimulate his thinking. So he's had a little bit of time for that. Um, we're going to see how this works when you're doing this live and uh, aren't aren't just stopping and uh, and ruminating for a little bit. So here we go.
0: Yes. And I mean... We'll probably have uh, our trusty Brian um, editing out a little bit of the white space sometimes. So I think it's a good note to say, you know, when we're doing this stuff on podcasts, we, you know, we we move things along in a way that isn't always 100% like the way that human beings naturally communicate, because you are trying to make it interesting while also communicating. So I don't think there should be any pressure to feel like you know if you were to go through these questions um yourselves that you need to feel rushed to work through the answers um in this kind of way so definitely don't take that impression away okay Mm -hmm.
1: so first question what were your greatest successes in life and what goodness did each bring to you and others
0: oh so um (laughs) I like that this is phrased, I think, a little bit differently than it was in the initial questions that you asked, because I think it was initially the word was something like, what are you proud of? Um, and I I I, I, had, I wrote in my notes that I have real difficulties with the idea of of pride because of all of the, the free will, moral luck stuff that I'm obsessed with. Um, so I, I like it put more in terms of greatest successes, because I do think I can talk about the things in my life um, that went well um and the good that they brought um i think there's been there's been shows in my life in my theater side of things that i thought especially on the directing side maybe i can talk about some of those in particular a little bit at some point here but um that i felt like were genuine successes um i feel like uh whenever i teach a semester and it it doesn't crash and burn, that feels like a really substantial success to me. Um, Getting the Hamilton and Philosophy book put together and published felt like a pretty substantial um, success. Uh, Keeping Lou alive during her cancer treatment, I think, was a big win. Um, Yeah, I think that's probably a lot of, I mean, you know, getting my master's degree, hopefully, uh, eventually getting a PhD, but um, I think those are the main successes so far.
1: So, for um, let's just dive down a little with these. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, the one for Lou is fairly self-explanatory in terms of who who benefits from it or what goodness it brought. Um, with the theater directing, how mm-hmm. would you think about how that imp- impacted others in a positive way?
0: So, I really love. Theater as a applied way to engage in personal growth. Um, I think it challenges people in in lots of different ways. And the time that I spent uh, as a director at Bucks Rock is some of the most personally meaningful teaching experiences that I had. Um, I have. I still get emails from campers sometimes who have gone on to continue to do theater, getting you know, uh, getting leads in various shows, and just talking about how those experiences for help helped them um, build confidence helped them um, you know grow and stretch as persons and realize what they were capable of Um, and I think you know I really love I just love the the communal process of theater the way that everyone sort of comes together and and sort of pushes for something that's just a little bit beyond our reach and something um, great can come of that that Changes everyone who experiences it.
1: So a lot of those comments um, fit also with your teaching and the development of Hamilton and philosophy. Is there anything additionally for those two things that you feel like really brought goodness to uh, you or other people in a a different way?
0: Yeah, with the teaching stuff especially because I, I get to focus on ethics, which I think is a real treat. I get to i mean maybe i'm deluding myself i mean i i I, as you were at as i was working through these preparatory questions i had to constantly be sort of checking the fact that like i want to caveat all of this as saying i have no way to know if any of this is any actually meaningful or actually helping anybody but this is how it feels from my side at least so i can only do so much with that but um yeah my sense is that when I get to teach ethics, especially, a lot of the people who come into that room have almost never have not really thought about ethics in explicit terms. They are sort of aware of the concept, but they don't often think of it as a unified field or a unified issue. Um, and by the end of it, they're aware that it's in everything that they are doing all the time. That it matters a great deal. They care about it more, and they can talk about it better. They have ways of Actually, engaging with their, with the really, really complicated ethical reality that we're all wrestling with, and so I think that, you know, it doesn't make their lives necessarily any easier, but maybe it helps a little bit in terms of, um, how they, how they can struggle through all the same things that the rest of us are tr- struggling through.
1: Did Hamilton? Any, uh, any gravy there?
0: Yeah, well, I mean. I have mixed feelings about that one because the publishers were a little bit weird on the on the back end in terms of compensating people for the work that had gone into it, um, but it was still sort of a labor of love, especially because I have really struggled in my life with trying to do academic publishing and have not really succeeded because of you know a mix of not having someone who mentored me quite as much through the steps of that process, but also feeling like I don't have anything particularly new or brilliant to contribute to the canon. So uh, it was nice to, it, w- it was sort of a first foray into the kind of public philosophy that I feel like I get to do on the podcasts, which I feel like are incredibly meaningful. And I I, I should add, I, I can't believe I didn't add this on there. And this is the point of doing these things live. You know, one of the greatest successes, I guess I would say in my life is these two podcasts that like, I think embrace the void and philosophers in space are something that I feel is a valuable contribution for people to experience those who enjoy experiencing it. And that the communities that have grown up um, around the shows I'm, you know, I guess as close as I would get to saying I'm proud of anything, right? I'm proud of those groups of people who I think are wonderful and um, engage in a kind of interaction with others that I think is really important.
1: Okay. Uh, Moving on, what things are important to you that need to be honored or remembered?
0: I mean, I don't think anything needs to be Honor and remember, but if people want to honor and remember things um, you know, I, I think that they can honor and remember the the levity with which I tried to approach uh, serious topics. There's there's a quote that I always think of when I think about trying to do philosophy that's from one of the Dune books um, where uh, Leto II says, philosophy should be approached with irreverence um, and I like to hope that what would be celebrated about me would be the way that I approached philosophy with a mix of, of seriousness and rigor, but also irreverence and fun, um, and thereby made it accessible for a, a broader range of people. Okay. And that, you know, that I was broadly speaking on as an individual, I guess, um, loyal, hopefully, and caring, hopefully, and... Um, you know, tried to do the right thing, even if I didn't always know what the right thing was or wasn't always the best at doing it.
1: Okay. Are there um, stories, memories, experiences that you want someone to know? They may not know about them and, and you're going to be gone in three months. Are there things that you want to make sure are left behind?
0: I would definitely want to make sure that the podcasts are left behind that they are compiled in such a way where people could still functionally get access to them um, after I'm gone. I would love for folks to come together and share some of the, especially some of the theater stories. There was one that came up for me, I guess I can't talk about it now, that, you know, was particularly meaningful from my my Bucks Rock years. This was in the last couple of years before I was um, fired by the uh, individual who's now in charge of Bucks Rock. And it was a show called Six Characters in Search of an Author. And it's a very philosophical kind of play. It's just a short summary. It's about... It starts off with people having a rehearsal, and it's very meta. As they're having a rehearsal for a show, six people show up claiming to be characters uh, in search of an author to tell their story. And they interact with the people... And they're all, uh, it sort of gets enmeshed into this big meta experience where uh, reality starts to bend in weird ways as these characters explain the horrible tragedy that they have to sort of continually relive as these um, unrequited uh, characters um, and it it starts to build into the real world. And it was a really challenging piece. It was one that I had seen when I was a camper at Bucks Rock many, many years ago. And I'd always loved the show um, and, and finally felt sort of confident to try to do it as a director. And it really is like, you know, biting off more than you can chew kind of show because these are, in this particular case, this show went for you know, two weeks of rehearsal, give or take, two and a half weeks of rehearsal. And these are um, individuals as young as um, 12 or 13, and my leads were, you know, 15 and 16. Um, and they, and, and, and like, especially for the male and female, Female lead, the mother and father of the six characters, they're a family. They had a lot to carry, a lot of emotion to carry. And in the father's case, a lot of fairly large, like monologues that were v- very philosophical in nature, a lot of like questioning what it is to um, exist as a person, to change and grow as a person. And I just remember vividly spend, you know, spending a lot of time with him working through those lines and making sure that he really understood them that he wasn't just mouthing the words that like he got the sort of existential you know horror and, and trauma behind these kinds of questions and he really he worked and worked and they all they all worked and worked and then sort the night of the show we do two shows back to back and the first show was solid but it felt like they were, you know, just barely keeping up with it, right? Just barely, sort of keeping their head above water with the lines. Um, a few things got dropped, but they got through it. And it was, it was a good show. You know, if that, if that would have been the only show, I would have been, they would have been very happy. But then in the second one, it really clicked, and they didn't feel like they were faking it. They felt like they were doing the characters, the lines felt genuine um we had some beautiful work with some puppetry um done by uh Cameron Garrity who's one of my favorite people in the world who's been on the show before um so it had that added experience of having you know another wonderful person involved in the creative collaborative process and there were like there's there's a sequence where you know one one of the real people quote unquote gets pulled into the story so much and starts describing how she would direct it and she calls for a blackout in a really dramatic kind of way and all the lights in the theater go out and it had all been building so beautifully that when that happened you could just feel like the ripple of Uh, response throughout the audience that like everyone was caught up in this sudden change and then when they you know come back in and it comes back in in this very stark tableau of the the family has taken up a different position and it's very dramatically designed and and just like you could feel it. And then at the end there was, there was just so much excitement, so much energy around um, the performance. I had, uh, you know, house counselors coming up and telling me uh, the next day that like put to bed where everyone tries to get everyone to go to sleep after the show was like pandemonium just because it had really struck a chord with um, everyone. And so, You know, I guess stories like that for me are ones that I would love for people to happily uh, retell as they're remembering. Because they, to me, are really, you know, meaningful moments of connection between lots of people that change all of them, hopefully for the better.
1: Do you have any concerns you would like to make peace with?
0: Mm. I don't honestly know that I do. I, like... I feel like I'm just generally speaking in a place where every day that I continue to be alive, there's a lot of things that I want to do and enjoy doing and derive meaning and value from doing. But at the point in which I'm hit by a meteor and that's the end, I don't feel like there's going to be unresolved things that I'll be upset that I didn't do or sort of unresolved. I mean maybe maybe it's because i'm at this point with the philosophy stuff where i just think the fundamental fabric of reality is unresolved questions and so i don't have an expectation that a lot of these things can or should or will get resolved that um it's more about you know just continuing to find ways to try to f- work through and then be at peace with the inconsistencies
1: so um, this is pulling together some of what you've said so mm-hmm. far. What are your thoughts about your life's meaning and purpose?
0: Yeah, that's hard because, you know, when I when I teach this stuff, when I teach projects of worth um, and the virtue theory and, um, you know, existentialism, the ability to, to assert your own purpose um, in the world, you know, I'm sympathetic to all of those kinds of views. I don't have any certainty that, any of it is necessarily actually objectively meaningful or valuable as a moral realist, I I, I think that it should be viewed as, or I think that it is meaningful and valuable, but I'm also, you know, a skeptic who doubts and wonders. So, but I guess the, if, you know, if I'm going to say the things that um, I think make life meaningful and valuable, it's the helping others, the contributing in ways that, and here's a weird dichotomy that I that I realized as I was thinking about this. You know, I, I think I'm not actually a hedonist in the sense that you know the hedonists I think really think pleasurable experiences are what make life valuable. And I'm when I think about what makes my life meaningful. I don't think the pleasurable experiences do it. I think the pleasurable experiences make my life fun. They make my life very enjoyable. And I think creating pleasurable experiences for other people, weirdly enough, feels meaningful to me. But I guess I don't assign, like, when I'm going to, you know, count up how many meaningful points I got in my life. The stuff that seems meaningful to me is the being a caregiver, is the um, engaging with others in ways that produce... Growth and in, and like I'll be honest, like, like even like I would say producing growth within myself is m- more meaningful to me than producing pleasure and happiness in the sort of uh, hedonistic kind of sense within myself. So yeah, I think it it sort of separated those things out for me a little bit more as I was thinking about this. If that makes some sense. That good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So. Um, so it seems like kind of to, to capsule that part, it's really about that, that you're thinking now is it's what you have given that brings your life meaning, that the ability to um, be part of another person's growth or another person's happiness or um, whatever those categories, but uh, both positive Including probative things that may, in the moment, not feel so great to someone. If you're, if you're uh, really nailing them down, but um, that that for you, that purpose is, is giving out. It's what goes out. But yes, it does come back in, and that feels good. But your purpose is what's giving out to make other people's lives better.
0: Yeah, and of course I have to caveat that again. Just like this feels so uncomfortable in the same way that like trying to write about myself for applying for graduate schools or something like that feels uncomfortable where you know I I always want to say and I don't know that I'm actually helping anyone or being particularly successful at any of these sorts of things but if these are the things that um these are the sorts of things that I would hope I am successful at if I'm going to have brought any meaning or value into the world it seems like
1: so this is the point where I would um, would pull together all the things he said, and um, th- and that you know would can take a little bit of time. I'm just going to take a kind of a shot at an overview. The way this would work, because some of the things that came up in here also came up in the prior discussion that we had on on after afterlife care and um, and preferences. And um, so I think the two of those, we would work together and, um, as an example, maybe show uh, more concretely how these things that we've uncovered here would be um, identified. Let me give a shot at um, just doing a recap. Mm -hmm. So I will honor my contributions as a philosopher, a teacher, a husband, a caregiver by uh, many things, including archiving podcasts, capturing theater and teaching stories that have had a positive impact. So you can see that that's not it, its a to me, it's a, a very strong core. It, you know exactly what you're dealing with here. And the ways that we might flesh this out would be, okay, when you put that together, so we're talking about legacy. Is there anything you would want to operationalize? Do you want to create something um, that goes with these that might be a writing if you're a if you're a painter it might be a painting if you you know there are lots and lots of ways that you could then take this information and um, attach it to other parts of your life to things that um, that you do to create usually is is kind of where that comes from some people when they've gotten to this point with it they they feel like oh my gosh I, I I really want to make a video for my grandchildren who only know me as i am this age and i want them to know who i was my whole age so you know my whole life um so there are lots of different places and i'm I'm trying to give you um since we're only going to be discussing two of these kind of an overview of how these things all flow together they're they're a web of your life and um when you look at the full vision map once it's created, you can see the the different visions for each of the segments, and they usually blend very beautifully. and um, And then further stimulated. So this isn't like a handoff document that's just static. It constantly prompts new thoughts about what you might like to do now as a result of what you've um, what you've looked at here, or what you'd like to build towards. Hmm. Um, so I think we would then, as I said before, we would go through the current reality. Um, yours is that um, that you've identified these now. There isn't anything specific that you've identified here as needing to be done, and that's where I think probably you would um, do a little more work on this to think about, okay, well, is there something I want to do that actually ends up as a product of some sort um, and you may or may not find that and then we would attach the action steps to it.
0: Yeah I could imagine sort of putting like like with the first section putting together specific passages from the Tao and Stranger for this kind of stuff maybe you know as, as, as stressful and painful as it is for me to try to point to like specific events I do think it would be it could be valuable to put together like a list of um you know here were shows that were particularly meaningful that i was a part of or um you know events or things i guess that uh stories from um specific trips that we went on or things like that absolutely you know
1: yep that's a pretty um uh, that's that's one that often comes up for people I've, I'll just give a couple of examples that I've found interesting. One person said that um, that she had uh, moved a lot in her life and that it always felt like, oh, my gosh, we've, you know, we know we've got to move. I just made friends and whatever. But that her parents always reoriented that and said, well, this is where we are now. We don't know how long we're going to be here, but we're going to make the most out of it. And so she ended up making a document that was, I, I grow where I'm planted. And um, she was felt really good about passing that along to her daughter, both to tell her more about her life explicitly. You know, this is where I went to graduate school, because even though someone knows those things about you, they may not know why they had meaning for you. So they it it gets um, gelled down to um, yes, my mom went to Columbia or whatever but they don't have the meaning attached to them. So a lot of people do end up creating different documents, um, and, and they're so valuable. Um, also, when you do get to end of life, you have things that you can share with people. So it's that document also becomes something that's really valuable for you to have and reflect on. And they make conversations at end of life much more valuable and interesting and funny and exciting um, because you're actually talking you're not talking about your physical symptoms or oh my gosh I've got you know a month left or you're not focused on the loss you're focused on you know good things and you're focused on still creating because at that point you're you're educating someone you're having a conversation with someone and um, that's very enlivening
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so is there anything from this particular set of the material that we want to talk about before we, we wrap up a little bit?
1: No, I mean, I think that really the work would would be just for you to chart out the action steps of when you wanted to do that mm-hmm. and um, and how, how you wanted to approach that. Um, one person that I know uh, that I use this with um, did wanted to look back at the things in their life, the events and points in their life that they had assumed they made wrong decisions about and that had, had troubled them. And they wanted to go back and plot those things kind of and say what was good about them. So, hmm. so it was, you know, a different way. And that was something that didn't come up in the initial interview. It came up after the person had reflected on it a little bit and said, yeah, you know, I, I, the, the regrets I have is all those stupid things I did. You know, why did I do that? <laughs> and um, and she couldn't get it resolved during the course of the conversation. It just She just wanted to keep beating herself up. And then eventually we, we talked again, and she said, you know, what I'd really like to do is kind of flip those guys on their head. And, again, she felt that to be a, a teaching thing that she could bring to particularly younger people in her life um, at end of life or, or before mm-hmm. that. But um, it was an opportunity to take things that had caused her difficulty in her life and make them into positive things.
0: That's great. So to wrap up here a little bit, um, do you have any sort of final thoughts or suggestions for folks who, you know, may be interested but also feel like they may have like, had a lot of felt anxiety over these two episodes, hearing discussions on things like this? Um, Do you feel like there are ways that you've found are helpful for people to sort of take the, is it just like taking the first step is a little difficult, but once people get going, they tend to get in the rhythm? Do you feel like, do you feel like certain parts of this map are maybe easier for people to start their path and then they can maybe work their way towards the things that might be a little bit more confronting?
1: I I don't. It, it's hard to capture it because each interview I've done has been um, very different in terms of how it's played out. As as I was saying, sometimes people will loop back to me um, again and again, and that you know that's fine. Other time, but I guess the main thing that 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 I would say about it is you can't get it wrong. Um, and that I and I say that to myself when I'm doing the interview because I you know I'm still. Fairly new at this particular thing, and so I always have a little anxiety going into it. Of oh my gosh, I'm really, you know, doing something that I hope is important to someone, and I and I want to get it right. And then it's like, no, it's just a conversation. We're just talking, and it's not it's not an accounting of your life. It's not an assessment of your life of of good or bad or whatever. Um, and we're taught kind of you know in our competitive society um, we're very much taught that our activities our thinking and so forth has got to fit on a scale somewhere and it's got to be assessed in a a positive way and if we're recounting our life oh my gosh you know we certainly don't want to look at anything that might not have been positive Um, but I think it's a great time to look at something that might not be positive and see if there's anything to do with it or just be with that Information um, it goes in so many different directions. I've honestly not seen it go in a bad direction. I know it can certainly trigger things, particularly in people that have had traumatic experiences in life, and and that's I, I, I'm saying that's okay. What I mean by that is I feel grounded in knowing how to help someone find resources. If if that type of thing were to happen, and just you know just be calm with it, I don't. That, that's not been my experience, um, but I know of, of their colleagues who who have had that experience and spent three or four hours having these discussions. But that's not that's not usual.
0: Great. Well, I think we're just about at the end of things um, here. Do you have any um, final thoughts you want to share? Any about about death more broadly speaking, perhaps? I,
1: I really think it's about um what what I feel most passionate about and the reason that I use I make myself use death doula instead of end of life doula which is more comfortable for me to use end of life because I'm really working to make sure that I'm getting my craziness that has been given to me about uh, fear of death and and keeping it in the closet out of the way too so I would I would just challenge you I think to um, to think about when you find yourself moving away from, from using the word or from being in a situation where that's going to be discussed or where you're going to have to deal with it in some way, to really be conscious. The, the way I think about my work is it is conscious dying for conscious living. And it, it it's circular in, in, in such a wonderful way, that way. It's circular because conscious living also be, becomes a, about the person who is on this journey. And and it's also about all the people that you touch because the more you're comfortable with using the term death, with talking about your own death, with not being fearful and expressing that, you have no idea where those seeds go when when you're doing that. And I find that it certainly lightens me, and and as well as the people that I work with on this. So, um, even talking with Aaron when we were were thinking about doing this, and I thought, well, that's weird, uh, <laughs> you know, that's not something we've talked about a lot of stuff, but that's not one of them. And you know, talking about his death is not something I am really that excited about on one level, and on the other, I am really happy that we're having this conversation.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's wonderful. That's really. Great place to stop that, and I really, um, as one of the lucky people who gets to work with you to talk about this stuff and um, and to to know you look close so closely as a person, I think I'm uh, very. I guess proud is not the right word, but I'm very blessed about that particular fact. So um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Brenda. I really appreciate it. And I I know that folks have um, enjoyed um, hearing this kind of stuff. And we will put some resources online on the um, show notes for folks who are interested in learning more. So thank you very much.
1: Most welcome. There is sex positivity and there's death positivity. And this is it.
0: I think we might skip the episode on (laughs) sex positivity in this particular context. But I think this was good. This was good. All right. Thank you all very much. I want to give an extra special start to a new Voidy year. Thanks to all our listeners and patrons out there. I feel so lucky every day that I get to do this passion project and share it with y'all. And your support makes it all possible. Uh, We've got several new patrons this month who I wanted to give a shout out to. So thanks to Trilobite Tark. Thanks to Jonathan Yance Jones, thanks to Joel Nield, and thanks to Jason Lee Baez, who's going to hopefully be a guest on the show in the near future. Um, Thank you all so much for joining, and um, as always, I want to give very special thanks to our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb, Good Morning Camp Quest, gimme those sweet sweet utils and jesse rabinowitz and brenda goodman and of course as always extra top of the tier thanks to our uh longest most so long-term biggest supporter dave Maslich. i really genuinely do appreciate all y'all thank you so so much um if you'd like to support the show Please leave us a five-star rating or a review on a podcast app near you. Uh, follow us on Twitter at ETV Pods. Um, and if you do notice yourself looking forward to these episodes each week, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com/slash embrace the void. It's just four dollars a month, and you get our bonus book club content. Um, and most importantly, remember, you are the void, and the void is you.